regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi, listeners. This is Datacast, where you hold long-form and in-depth conversations with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Alexander Gallego, the father and CEO of Red Panda Data, a high-performance Apache Kafka-compatible data streaming platform for mission-critical workloads. He spent his career immersed in deeply technical environments and is passionate about finding and building solutions to the challenge of modern data streaming. Prior to Red Panda, Alex was the principal engineer at Akamai, as well as the co-founder and CTO of Concordo.io, a high-performance stream processing engine acquired by Akamai in 2016. There's also engineered software and a research system for its capital markets and Yomo, and holds a bachelor degree in computer science and cryptography from NYU. So Alex, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me, James. Happy to be here. So I want to start our conversation a little bit by going all the way back into your educational background. So according to some my research, I believe that you grew up in Colombia, in a little town, right at the bottom of the country's only active volcano. And then by mm-hmm. the age of 14, you left Colombia, not knowing a word of English, to join your father, who was living in the U.S., in Connecticut. Could you mind sharing some of these formative experiences of your upbringing? Yeah. So the, the city's name is Manizales. It's, it's technically Northwest Brazil. It's a very small city. And yeah, when I came to the U.S., I remember one of my first classes when I went, so I went into high school and they didn't have any SL program. So now I think things are better for my migrant students, but when I landed, it was an old, so all the classes were in English, right? That there weren't, even though there was like a large Spanish population, the high school I went to didn't have really any handholding. And so the first thing you learn when you get into a country is you smile and nod. And that's basically just how you can talk for your first year. And so I remember the first class, I was asking the person in front of me, and you could imagine a teenager was like 14 and a half, 15. And I was just like, you know, hey, can you tell me what, it's a history class. Can you tell me what's going on with the class? And he's, so he would turn back and translate. And that went back and forth and this. Meanwhile, the instructor is, is saying, stop talking. And of course I didn't know. So then I would, it looked like I was defying him because I would then ask the person, I was like, what is the guy saying? And the person was like, yeah, I don't want to talk to you. I was like, why not? Like you're translating. And he was really nice. I was just trying to understand. <laughs> and of course, as chatting was like against what he was saying to stop chatting. So I remember like the first four hours of American high school, I'm sitting in the hall in detention. I was like, well, I guess this is just how American high schools work. And yeah, <laughs> that was my introduction into American high school. Yeah. And so it was a fun learning experience. It's very formative, I think. 
to have to figure out, it's like, how do I say, can I use the restroom? Or like, how do you order a piece of bread? And what's my name? And mm-hmm. that sort of thing. It's been a ton of fun to, to learn a new language and, and stay in the U.S. Yeah. And so I'm just curious, like, just going from a country like Colombia to the U.S., was how big of a mastership for you, just like in terms of personal growth and challenges, just making new friends and, I don't know, I guess like being in a new environment as, as an immigrant, I'm curious. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I think the U.S. is really has been built by immigrants and it's very, I think, sad to see when there's an anti-immigration mentality, but it's like the country is like built by immigrants. If you actually look at the people that have made impact in the world, in the U.S. at least. Anyways, for me, it's, it was a shock because I was really poor and my mom was even poorer than I was. And so when I came to the U.S., my parents played a trick on me that says, hey, if you come to the U.S., I'll buy you a BMX bike, an aluminum frame BMX bike. In my head, of course, you're a child and so you have no idea how the world works. In my head, I was like, it's the same living condition. I'll just have a better BMX bike. And my dad did end up buying me the BMX bike, but it was in Stanford, Connecticut. And there's no BMX track available. And, and so I was like, it's this bike thing is useless. And so I think that was the, the biggest shock. It's just such like a, a culture shock for so many people. Like it's not just the language it's I think learning the culture mm-hmm. was probably the largest gap. It's like you join many cultures. I joined in, in the culture of my dad, who I really largely didn't grow up with. I joined the culture of the, of the U.S., totally different like values to the way that, that you're brought up and the things that society values. Anyways, I think to me, learning the language was easier than learning the culture. I think that to this day, I have I'm not very good at going to trivia nights to bars because I haven't watched television in the U.S. It's like I, I got here so old that when I show up at trivia nights, or not old, I was still a teenager, but I just, like, I don't know who this person is. I don't know this song. I have a son now who's 11 months old and I have zero clue of all the songs that you sing to babies. And so when I sing to him, I just sing in Spanish and it's just how it is. I think the gap was definitely huge in more dimensions that I think we'll ever have time to chat in a single hour of a podcast. But it was definitely a big, big shock for me. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for sharing some of the stories and some of the challenges that you encountered to, throughout that process of growing up. And then you went on to become the first in your family to attend college when you were given a scholarship to attend NYU's Polytechnic School of Engineering. You actually was there to study computer science. And I believe that during some of the latest years of your undergrad career, you collaborate on some of the cryptography research project with Professor Nita Sassena and Jonathan Voris. So who, how would you describe your overall academic experience at NYU? That is such a fun question to, to answer. I think people tend to underestimate how much of a shift it is for the first person to do something. And there isn't like a hero story or anything like that. It, it, it's actually, I think the journey of figuring out how to do it takes so long to discover this nuance. So the way I Googled for college is in Austin High School. And so first of all, my entire family was in Colombia. And so here, I'm in a new country. And I think by that time I was already living by myself. When I was graduating high school, I got to skip a ton of grades because I was very lucky. So I skipped 
third grade, I skipped part of seventh grade. I skipped eighth grade, went into ninth grade and skipped 12th grade. I was in that challenge academically for a really long time. What happened was, is I was sitting in a computer library and you do feel this forms and it's, what are you going to be good at? And it's very overwhelming because I was like, I don't know. It's just like, I don't have anyone to talk to really. And so I Googled and I was really good at taking things apart. I think my, I grew up decomposing, racing motorbikes as in KTMs and Kawasaki's. I would take out the engine and put it back together and it's for race motorbikes. And I think I was good at that and I love playing video games and that kind of stuff. And so I went on Google and I was like, you know, how to hack. And so I applied and I saw a bunch of lists of, of then ads. And so NYU had just released this, hey, they have this really cool hacker program. It was a cybersecurity program. And I think there was Lehigh University and Boston University and a bunch of stuff. And so I applied and I was shocked. I had done, my GPA was okay. And so I got in and I did displacement tests and I even placed out of my English classes, which was like mind blowing to me because I, I still couldn't, it's like, how is it possible for an immigrant to place out of English? They had given me Shakespeare. In particular, they gave me Othello. And I love that player. I think Iago is the best villain in, in history, at least in the literature that I've read. And so they're like, hey, can you analyze this piece? Of course I can analyze. I had read this thing five times. I've been to like 10 plays. So I wrote this essay and I placed out of my English requirements. And anyway, so that, that was the story. So I went into NYU having no clue, really. And so I placed into the president's list. Mm -hmm. And my advisor back then, Susana Garcia, goes, you're the only undecided major. And so I asked her, well, what do you advise? And she goes, I advise computer science. I was like, okay, you know, write that. And that was it. That's literally how I ended up doing programming. It's because like my advisor that I happened to be randomly allocated to was a computer science, the person that was doing all the computer science curriculum. Nice. And one thing led to another, and it was really a good fit for me personally. And here we are. Yeah. And can you talk a bit about some of that? Research project that you work on cryptography and security in your junior senior year. Yeah. I'll give you a little bit more background, just a quick minute. It's when I went to college, it was the first time I think I was challenged to like academically. I was like, I think high school was very easy. And so it was like middle school and early. And that's why I skipped a bunch of years. So you go to college, like a, a real, but well, a Disney university. And I was like, wow, everyone is actually really smart and it was fun. And and so I did really poorly, I think, on the initial set of exams. I was like, okay, I got to get my life together. It's the first time. Ended up doing really well in, in academically. And so I was part, there was this program, this Wednesday club. It was like hacking club. I was like, okay, I got to be part of this. It just sounded cool. I didn't know what it was. And Nitesh Saxena was a cryptography researcher. And I've always cared about applied systems. And the reason I chose to leave academia and go into an engineering is that to me, I think I can add more value to the world in building real systems that people can use that make their life better, right? Like right now, for example, we see Red Panda being deployed in outer space and in payment systems and in oil and gas pipelines and in intelligent beds to monitor heart meters between moms and babies. And so to me, that was the kind of system I wanted to build when I was there. And so I was part of this research and I had this idea, 
of, and so Nitesh had started this area of research of using games to motivate people. And I wrote the first game to build entropy. And then I built a new idea, which I think got us a bunch of papers published in, in like prestigious journals, like ACM. I was like, first of all, the first game was like a color and it was a way to transmit out of band entropy. And so a lot of the issues with cryptography is actually the bootstrapping process is the hardest thing. It's like, how do you transmit true randomness or how do you transfer key? And so the idea is imagine a, is sealed, so four walls, and the attacker cannot see, cannot hear, but they have access to wireless signals. So you couldn't transmit the key, a pre-shared key between a device and a router, let's say for pairing a wireless password. So we invented games around that, and then later we invented a bunch of games around maze puzzle solving for building layered security on Android. Google gave us a bunch of money for some of my ideas. And then I think the NSF gave us money and we published a bunch of papers in Ultimately, I left cryptography and academia mm -hmm. because I wanted to build applied systems. I wanted to build systems that made the world a better place today, not in 10 years. I think it's a different kind of building, both fundamentally important for the progress of society. Yeah. But what I thought was my calling is I could make this real. I, and I think that's what I've been good at. It's just taking something, an idea like Red Panda, like storage engine with kernel bypass and making it real and making it useful for some of the world's largest companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that experience. I'm just curious on quick note on your answer is that was there anything from doing research in cryptography that, you know, was beneficial for the rest of your career until now that you still hold on to even today? I think academic rigor is really useful and the process of feedback in academia is brutal. I think I cried the first time we submitted a paper to some journal, some ACM journal. And I'm like, the person critiqued the part of the paper. I was like, I was in college. I was like early, late teens or early twenties. And it's like, first time I stepping into a big boy podium. It's okay. We're going to submit this to a scientifically rigorous process. And it's always reviewer three goes, this idea is never going to work. This idea sucks. You haven't done your research. And I was like, of course we have. If you look at the references, we've listed 15 papers. And I think later on in life, I realized that it was like part of the reviewer's three personal failings of him not being able to realize the similar area of research that we were seeing success in. Really like, I think his emotional states. Anyways, the gist of that is the honest or maybe even brutal, I think, to some extent, feedback process of critiquing your ideas yeah. and actually extracting the truth out of that idea. And so that was one. Two is divorcing your value of your personal self-worth from the value of your work. Like I'm a, mm. I still identified a large part of, I feel really proud of the things that I built. I'm essentially a builder. And so I, I like to build things. And so those, I think, were two good things. One, there's regret, right? So, you know, really BS yourself into thinking that you're better than you are. Two is asking people who are experts about your idea and try to have them pick it apart and not come out of that process feeling that it was an attack on you, but it's actually learning and saying like, that's an attack of this idea and this process of thinking. It's not, it doesn't make me lesser of a person. That I think was foundational into transitioning into the work life where it's fine. Sometimes you write some piece of code and it sucks. It's the truth. Like you can't write a good piece of code like 
from that. Sometimes you get lucky and you write good stuff, but a lot of the times you need iteration and feedback. That I think I still carry to me to this day. It's like, I want experts to tell me the things that I'm doing wrong, not because I want to satisfy them, it's because I want to learn what I'm doing wrong so I could do better next time, even from a technical perspective. Absolutely. I really love both of those more. Academic rigor, the uh, honest feedback, and the, the, the distinction between personal identity and professional accomplishment. Yeah. So continuing back into your career, after finishing undergrad at NYU, you joined Faxas Research System as a software engineer, developing mobile applications for iPhone and Android. What are some of the career lessons you learned from that first job? It's surprising that the world works. <laughs> so we were using a, a, a fork of SQLite to do, that, that was the job at least that I was doing. <laughs> so basically process the S&P 500 and render it into Blackberries and gosh, Nokia, but I think Blackberry was really the most difficult C export API that I've ever programmed. Like an absolutely bucket, like someone with a fanboy of Java with dependency injection got into Blackberry and implemented one of the most complicated APIs that you could possibly write against. It's surprising that it worked. Yeah. And then really there, there are multiple things. It's that one, the world I think needed more builders. It's reinforced my intuition. I was like, we could do better. Whoever is listening to fuckheads, you could probably take up just about any process and improve on just about any system. I'm confident that people spending enough time should be able to do better than most things that exist out there because most things are developed in a larger context. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, for Faxit, I learned a lot. So I definitely learned uh, the process of pull requests, writing C++ code for open VMS, which is a really awkward operating system, a totally different threading model, weird memory semantics, and it had its own standard library separate from the C++ standard. And so like, the technical surface area was massive. And so learning how to learn fast on the job, learning to just not be afraid of downloading the compiler code in your laptop and actually it's like, what is the actual standard library for string or whatever hash set or list, like how does it actually look and why was it built that way? So that was really fun in understanding that there's this space for improvement is so large. And then when you meet these people who built all the system, I was like, if you did it, I could definitely do it. <laughs> that was, and they were impressive, but they just were instead of this hero-like personalities that people tend to think of people that have built impressive systems. This person is just so extraordinary. I was like, yeah, maybe in one dimension. But it's because to them, it's felt like this iterative process. And, but, and to you, because you don't have the context, it feels like this mental leap in, into the future. Long story short, is I think being able to meet some people that have actually changed how the world works. And I think Faxit is one, one such company. There's many companies, right? Like I think basically most successful public companies have changed the world in one dimension. And then you meet the people that built it and you're like, oh man, that's awesome. I could be them. I could change the system and I could build systems like this. I see. Yeah. Having those mental, like almost role models for you to aspire to become extremely impactful for those first And round. it just makes them human, right? It's just, oh, like this person built the initial trading system and they did this XML RPC. And I was like, I could do that. <laughs> uh, and then you could make the world better. And it's, if I could improve on that, what else would I do differently? And uh, anyways, to me, at least 
that was a big lesson learned from working at Faxit. For sure. In early 2012, you joined the mobile ad exchange network Yomo as the first employees and the first engineer. So my question is two part. First, how did this opportunity come about? And secondly, what were some of your core responsibility at Yomo? Yeah. So the way this came about is a friend of mine, actually my friend Joe Lalouse, who went on to sell a company to Coinbase recently, was so he was my interim mentor at Faxit, and then he went on to work for the CEO of Yieldmo, which is a Google venture company called Yavon, Mike Yavondidi. And Mike, I showed up and he's like, I'll double your salary starting two weeks. And I was like, I have vacation, but yes, I like the, this idea. And I, I loved it. It's like, I, I was so young and I still had, then I, I had college loans, right? Yeah. And so even though I had effectively a full academic ride, except for dorms in New York City are extremely expensive. And he's like, I'll double your salary. I was like, well, this sounds like a great deal to me. And he'll give me a team and I get to work on all of this stuff. John Aaron left on to start then Grand Street that they sold to Etsy and I stayed. And so I was literally the first engineer. And when I was there, literally everything. And as in like, I, I wrote the first few lines of code of what became the advertising SDK. I wrote a lot of the ad server code. I hired the team. Huge lessons learned is how to build a team, how to work fast, how to prioritize the thing that will move the business forward. There are just so many, but in terms of a technical perspective, I think it's, it's what th this podcast really values is I had a lot of ownership around the technical direction and a lot of freedom. I own the mistake, so it's not like we, we made the right decision. So there were a lot of late nights, but the team trusted me. I don't know why, to be honest, because I was too young, right? I was like 24 years old. And here I was trying to build an ad tech company with, with a bunch of very seasoned experts. And they just trusted me to do things. And I was allowed to make a lot of mistakes. I, I owned them. So I had to get paid at 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. And I was like, oh, we need to think about scalability. And the fun thing about Yilma, though, is that we were doubling in traffic every month. When you onboard the New York Times and Forbes and Reuters and MSNBC and all of these people, they're just like a news event, like the guy from Fast and Furious dying <laughs> was like a hundred X. No, truly. It's like, it was like a hundred X load volume on your ad servers. And so as a young engineer, it's really hard to envision even building for a hundred X. And it truly is because you absorb the 10X traffic of every publisher, which is why a lot of big data systems actually come out of ad tech inspired backgrounds, right? Like actually, if you look at Druid, if you look at a lot of the Google papers, if you look at a lot of, of Facebook papers, advertising is this dirty word in tech, but it's how a lot of systems get sponsored, right? Either you pay for a product or you become the product. That's basically the decision. And when a large group of people become the product, then things like publishing, right? Like it has this transitive effect on infrastructure. And so you go, you experience this like 10x growth so fast. And these are every, every few months, you're literally rewriting things from scratch and you're putting load balancers and caching. And now you got to do streaming and think of building a control plane database. And anyways, so to me, Yilmo was, I think, formative in how to think about large scale systems that to me required this low latency response. And that inspired a lot of the later work that I went on to do. And even really up to Red Panda, to me, there have been this iterative improvement of ideas over time on using the log as the source of truth from a technical standpoint and everything else becoming a cache. That was like technical guidance 
give developers. And so Yilmo was like the place where I got to make a lot of the mistakes I got to learn. And it was still a successful company and seeing this is what traction feels like at the time. I think the company could have grown a, a bit larger, but I think management decisions. And so I left yeah. and I started Concord. Yeah. We will talk about the, some of the technical work that related to Concord at UMO in a sec, but I don't want to quickly double click on, on the part that you talk about just your responsibility at UMO, everything ranging from expanding a team, hiring, working hard. Talk about hiring just a little bit at this point. You're very young, just one or two years out of, out of school and you're tasked with hiring the engineering team, I believe. I, I guess just reflecting on those years, say, from the experience of hiring engineers, what do you think are some of the attributes of an exceptional engineer? People that care that if I were to reduce it down to a single thing is from a technical perspective, at least when you find people that care, they deeply care about the work that they do. They care about the craftsmanship of the code. They care about the quality they like, and this is beyond battling the white spaces because it looks good, but as in they care about efficiency, they care about algorithmic complexity, they care about the runtime, they care about the carbon footprint of their code, they care about the scalability. They want to learn and they'll do whatever it takes. It's so easy to mentor an engineer that cares. Like that to me is by far has been one of the most gratifying things. Especially now that I've been a little later in my career, taking an engineer and then mentoring him, I was like, hey, what do you think about that? And giving them some room to make the mistakes. But when you find someone that cares, they'll just largely align with the right problem domain. They align with you and they want to solve hard problems. And actually that, that was probably the best lesson learned from there. I think back then I didn't over-index on what I over-index now. And I think my hiring criterion process have fundamentally changed over time. Mm-hmm. But back then, the biggest lesson learned for me is I just want to hire people that that deeply care about the problems that they're working on. Um, that was it. I think back then I over-indexed too much on the technical part of the equation. Yeah. And in my head, I thought that I was willing to give up on the, I was too young and I hadn't seen the repercussions of yeah. working with toxic team members. I think now I do the opposite. Is My expectation is that people are fantastic at a technical level and I will design an interview process to extract the signals that I care about. But today I over-index on the human part of the equation because I spend so much time at work, I wanna work with good people. And that's worked out so well for us. Honestly, we just have amazing retention. Like people just don't wanna leave Red Panda even though they can make probably a little bit more cash somewhere else. And we get, we're really generous with equity in general. And so anyways, long story, the lesson learned back at Yilmo is to work with people that care. I think as I mature throughout my career, with the years and gray hairs, I, I now expect that to be the case and I will, but I will over index on the human side. So if you are, for lack of a better word, if you're a jerk, I won't hire you. You could be a world famous person. In fact, we've passed on people that if you Google them, they have Wikipedia entries that wanted to work with us. And yeah. I'm just like, frankly, you're just not the right member for me. Maybe you're a good team member for someone else. Yeah. Thanks for highlighting the importance of those who treat programming as a craft, right? really focused on the craft. And the part about over-investing on the human side of the equation, not just on the technical side as well. Now, talking about the technical challenges, so I believe that 
while working at UMO during that growth phase, you talk about traffic scalability of system 100x. You became interested in problem stream processing, which later resulted in the building of Concord with two of your co-workers back then, Shinji Kim and Robert Duffer. Can you reveal any specific challenges at UMO that sparked such an interest, as well as the backstory behind the creation of Concord? Yeah, the backstory is it's a badass. She's a friend and she's actually a fan. She just started her new company called Select Star. She's great. And Rob is an old buddy of mine from school. He actually, I just hired him to work with me recently. So he's part of my team. And so just really good stories all around. For Concord, when I was at Yuma, I was using this project called Apache Storm. And Apache Storm was, the context is this closure core system. And then you had a Java backend. And then people ended up adding Scala APIs. And so it was practically impossible to debug stack trace because you had to debug Scala compatibility with Java compatibility with closure compatibility. And you had like, when you got a stack trace, you're like, I don't know what this means. It says zero X, go find something better to do. And that's like the kind of back trace that you would get with this. And then debugging Nimbus and the storm controller and all of this, you're like, why isn't my topology deploying? Why isn't the mega jar in the packing? I think it was all very janky. I think, let me take it back. From a technical perspective, I think Storm added a lot of value to the world. What it added was a blueprint of how to do real-time processing. And people thought Twitter is doing this with, I think, Kestrel back then. And then your LinkedIn was started using it with Kafka. And Storm and Kafka went hand in building real-time pipelines. And so if you wanted to do real-time machine learning in, in, in ad tech, like, there were basically three good technologies. You had Kafka, Storm, and Cassandra. That was it, right? Like you could build an ad tech with those three, largely. You could build an ad tech with those three technologies. Still today, probably there's like many companies that are built on that. But to me, Storm had no predictability. Storm was impossible to debug. Storm had terrible message per second performance. And it didn't use a, it didn't leverage an Oracle. And so back then Mesos had come out with the, the dominant resource furnitures algorithm, DRF. So Ben wrote DRF as part of his PhD thesis in Berkeley and actually Spark, funny story, Spark. So I think Matei and Ben were friends and Spark was built to test Ben's DRF algorithms. So Spark streaming was actually, Spark, Databricks, all that, was built to test the underlying assumption that Mesos could scale down to the dominant resource. So I built it on top of Mesos because I thought the world had to use an Oracle. Mm -hmm. I was right. In that there is an Oracle, except the Oracle became Kubernetes. It didn't, Mesos didn't win. Um, and I think for more cultural reasons than technical reasons. Yeah. And so Concord was built. So I built Concord on my own, right? I wrote it in C. And the idea yep. was like, I want to get performance. I want to get predictability. I, would, I was yearning for a system that I could understand that was easy to understand. So I built Concord out of what I thought the world needed. And that I wanted. And so I went on to build a company around it. And technically, I think the project was a success. I think the world wasn't ready in 2014, 2015 to adopt Concord. I think still think to this day is the only framework that I can think of that gave people programmatic reactivity to failure. As in, you could reason about a scalability as an independent vector from your topology layout. Anyways, so that was Concord. 
And then we sold that to Akamai. And then being at Akamai allowed me to think about the next generational problems I wanted to solve, which then became Ritpa. That, that's basically a storyline there. Absolutely. And just a quick note for the listeners as well. I actually interviewed Shinji last year for my podcast. Anyone interested in learning about her story and Select Star, can you check it out as well? And in terms of what you said about starting Corn Curve, it's not just about the technical expertise, but also like state adoption, market readiness is also another important factor for the success of the company. And I'm just curious, this is your first startup experience as a father. Yeah. How is it like as a first time father working, hacking on this project on your own? Was there anything that you learned from that period that later that you like think a critical for Red Panda right now as a second time father? Yeah. You can have good technology, you can have great ideas, but if the market is not ready for it. The market just isn't ready for it. Timing is the thing you cannot fix and you can only guess when the world's going to be ready. I think that for Red Panda, it took me a, a, a few years. I think the project was in, in some dimension and it's success. Like we all made money and I was able to pay my student loans and I, everyone made a couple million bucks. But to me, I think it was still a personal failing. I was like, it's the project that could have been for me, at least right. Like, so I wrote the code and I was like, I could see that the world needs this. It just, it wasn't ready. And I think to me, it was really learning that there was very little that I think I could have done to, to teach the market a new way of thinking. And it required a lot of capital and a lot of different traction. It required a different way of, of company building. So I think it's very easy for technically minded people to say, I will build it and they will come. And that's not the case. Actually, a lot of company building is advocacy work is explaining to people is and holding them through their journey of becoming a user of your product is creating a product that your users love. It's building a product for a large market. There's many ways of building projects for, I think for Concord, it wasn't a big enough market. Like only the top 1% scale companies could benefit from the kind of architecture that Concord had. And I think if you look at Red Panda, it's actually the polar opposite. The majority of our adoption comes from a developer trying the product on their laptop. I was like, I need to make that experience the best possible. I remember when I was starting the project, I hired this person named Juan Castillo out of Colombia. And I said, you will not get your bonus unless people get 60 seconds time to wow. So if a developer tries this thing and it's not wow within 60 seconds, you don't get your bonus. I became obsessed with the developer experience because ultimately the yeah. change in my head was the developer is the person voting to adopting a technology. And so anyways, lots of lessons learned, but to me, I think it was working on a technology that developers loved. It was no longer about solving a technical problem. It was this and it was A and B was making sure that the developer loved the product that I was building. It was easy to use, blah, blah, blah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thanks for providing the valuable perspective. So after Concord got acquired by Akamai in 2016, you spent about two plus years at Akamai as a platform infrastructure engineer. And in particular, you work on dynamic scheduling and safe code execution to power Internet of Things initiatives at Akamai and also helped lead the effort for Akamai's next generation virtualization platform with Kubernetes. Yeah. Can you share some of the key learnings about distributed stream processing throughout your period working at Akamai? Akamai really, I think, opened my eyes into mm -hmm. what is the level of automation mm -hmm. that you need 
to scale your system, not as a function of the human operators running the code, but like how, as, but as a function of the systems that you've built to scale. I think it's like a very subtle distinction. And so you can have four engineers literally running thousands and thousands of computers. You just need to give them the time to automate the majority of edge cases. It includes provisioning, tuning, debugging, issue resolution. I was like, this is, that, that was missing. Like I, I was part of early, a lot of super high growth companies. Like I was mentioning Yield I think that we were growing, we were basically by the time you came back from vacation, like it was like the traffic had doubled and it was just, it was literally drinking from the fire hose, similar to Red Panda in many ways, actually. Our adoption has been unbelievable, but from a developer adoption. But anyways, Akamai had figured out over the last 20 years what it means to run a knock, right? Like a 24-7 mission critical, the world depends on Akamai to run their content. I think seeing it firsthand and seeing the code, the glue code, that just, I was like, come on, we could do better. <laughs> and it's like a lot of it, it's, it's just like, I think people tend to mystify this process. I was like, this thing is running a Perl script. I think Amazon is still bootstrapped with Perl. I was just like, it's mind blowing that things work. I think Apple runs, it's it still bootstraps there. They're part of the infrastructure with Perl. I was like, I could, do, I, certainly I could do better than this. And at least from a developer experience perspective at, at worst, but anyways, learning how they optimize their infrastructure and like the kind of systems and automation. I was like, this is what actual large scale looks like. This is, you're talking about petabytes and of workloads. That's pretty common and multi gigabyte per second workload sustained on a small cluster. It's like, you start to think about that. And then you start to think about like the, I think whatever, like teraflops of global compute power that they have. And this kinds of orders of magnitude helps you understand that Actually, the problems that people struggle, even at earlier scale, like even two or three developers, it's just magnified at larger scales. And so if you start to build processes around automation about day two optimizations, things like that, that to me, those were the most valuable things I got out of Akamai. The other things I think I could have learned at many companies, but I think what Akamai has nailed, scalability with very few people, it's mind-blowing how few people run the the largest internet companies and so that became an integral part of red panda so red panda comes with this auxiliary tool called rpk and it's literally an embedded database of day two operations you need to tune the linux kernel one command you need to run production one command you need to tune it for development one command you need to set up security basically one command you need to add a user just one command it's just like i need to obsess over automation, over the developer experience, so mm -hmm. that when teams integrate with Red Panda, it's literally one command. And if it's more than that, it's just like we're doing something wrong. It's all about that experience of 60 seconds to wow. So from a product perspective, it's very easy to explain it in 60 seconds to wow. But really the technical backing is you need that level of automation to be able to run a large scale. And I think there's just very few companies in the world that have experience this kind of scale. And I think to me, Akamai was a big to learn how to really learn, run at this kinds of scales. Yeah. I really love that, that part about the emphasis on automation and scalability with a few amount of resources. And then it sounds like some of those principles are what we try to bring about when building the backend 
technologies for Red Panda. We'll talk about Red Panda in a second, but I, I'll quickly go on an e-tour. So while doing the research for this goal, I came across this presentation that you gave back in 2017 at the DB Summit called the fastest RPC in the West. And you, you talk about this open source project called SMF, which is an RPC framework designed for microsecond tail latency. Yeah, could you mind walking through some of the work that you work on in this project? Yeah. So a lot of this was trying to learn what is the gap between a state-of-the-art hardware and a state-of-the-art software. I think that engineers have a tendency of operating at such a high level of abstraction. Let's take a Node.js engineer, right? Engineer working on hard problems, whatever the application domain that they're executing on. And they're just so divorced from how the world actually works. A lot of VM runtimes are like this. And to me, I was like, it's fine if you use them as long as you know how to use them. But uh, it is, I have a little side rant on managed runtimes in a bit. But the point is, the world doesn't run on category theory. It runs on this like super scalar CPUs with multi-gigabyte channel NICs and hard drives that can save a page and disk in like single digit microseconds. Like that's the physical world and everything else that you write on top of, it's like a made up thing. And so to me, <laughs> what is the gap in performance that people are leaving on the table by, by using this higher level runtimes. And so I really became obsessed. And so I started investigating DPDK and I took the flood buffers compiler. I extended the flood buffers compiler. I added like some string type optimizations. I added code generators. I wrote this code generator in C++ that would consume the flood buffers IDL, which is this little Indian encoding plus some pointer table jumping is very similar to the cap and proto serialization format. This doesn't make any sense for most people, but if you're low level, this will make sense to some of the audience. Anyways, so I took this, this flood buffers compiler and I generated a bunch of stops and the code that it generated was this C star backed, like thread per code architecture with the DPDK enabled driver. The takeaway from that, and so it just, the talk goes like great length and it's on YouTube. So if you're a listener and you care about this low level stuff, but you just go on YouTube and watch the talk. The takeaway was that the gap in performance, and I wrote this little storage engine and the little storage engine, by the way, became what Red Panda is at some point in the future, but like the ideas were there was 34 X gap in performance between the state of the art, which, you know, back then was Kafka. Yeah, I think the state of the art for streaming storage is Red Panda today. But anyways, the state of the art back then was Kafka and, uh, and what the hardware could give you. And so Smurf really came out of the need of trying to understand, and I think it was adopted by some banks, by some cryptocurrency exchanges, by some Italian database companies. And so the project is successful. I think people, because it was so small, people tend to fork and then embedded. It was Apache too. And I was like, fine, it's fine. Like, I'm just trying to learn and I'm glad this was useful to a ton of people. And so I think that's what Smurf was really me trying to experiment with the world and trying to understand what is the actual platform. Yeah, it's also like a great life forcing function for you to learn about this internal system and build benchmark and see if you can do something better than the status quo of stream processing system. Now, since January of 2019, you have been the father and CEO of Red Panda Data, formerly known as Vectorize, which builds a high-performance Apache Kappa compatible data streaming platform for mission-critical workloads. So can you share the story behind the founding of the company? Yeah, 
I started the company with the premise that, so out of expertise, really, right? So if you look at my background, I've been doing this for so long. To me, I couldn't find a storage engine that could keep up with the volumes of data I was trying to push. And so I wrote my own. Largely, that, that, that's how it works. I remember, I think I met a couple of even VCs that were like, God, you're crazy to compete with this competition. I was like, dude, listen. And he was always a dude. I was like, it's fine. Like, you don't have to trust me. I don't need your approval. And second, the product works. I built it. Like I wrote it. You don't have to tell me it's, this is impossible because I already made it possible and it works. And then so there, then there would be like mind blown. And I was like, oh, I didn't know this was possible. I was like, yes, because you have no idea what the hell you're talking about. And it's just, it's fine because a lot of VCs are very like business oriented. They have no clue really how technology works. Over time, even those that came from technical background, most of them, at least most that I've talked to, just actually don't truly understand the technology that you're working on. They're trying to evaluate the company mm-hmm. as like a market function. So yeah. nothing to do against it. They're doing their job. So anyways, so I started the storage engine because I thought the issue is just like, but this should exist. And, I, and then I built it. And the go-to-market function was, can I build a Kafka replacement designed for mission-critical systems? And so the idea was, if Red Panda crashes, you stop making money. And that was such a clear way of articulating to our developers. That's the kind of software expectations that you need to build. If Red Panda fails, their business fails and we fail. So we have to build a resilient, highly available, safe transactional storage engine that people can use to build their businesses on top of. And I feel really proud of having succeeded in that with Jepson report coming out later, proving a lot of the stuff that we claim we didn't. Talking about the academic background earlier on, I was like, this is great. Like, this means this is like when somebody comes in external and validates like, oh, these guys are doing the things that, that they actually said that they're doing. It's, it's really fun to see. So we went to market and we onboarded companies, public companies that we can reference are like Akamai and some of the largest electric car company in the world and Zenly, who's, who's part of Snap and, and so on. And so it's just, uh, we've been very lucky in that that original thesis really resonated with people. Can I use something simple that I can depend on my mission critical system and I don't have to change a single line of code? That thesis worked out quite well for us. And yeah, so I think people see us as both the best present and the future of streaming data. And we're just excited. I think timing was perfect, right? Like the same group of people could have built another really cool technology and maybe even useful. But I think what we found is we found we built something useful and the market timing was just perfect, literally, like the world needed something that we created. And so our adoption has largely been organic. As in people come to our website and it's like, can I pay you money? Because I love your product. It's, that doesn't happen to most of my friends. And that's just, I think, market timing. Yeah. Really emphasizing that importance of market readiness again, which is what you learn based on your experience with Concord. And uh, yeah, I would love to unpack all of the parts you mentioned, both from the technical side and the go-to-market side. So you mentioned about Apache Kafka a little bit, and how Panda served as the replacement for that. Also, by the way, I will also be sure to include the Jensen report into the show notes that you just mentioned. There's a space on that on a website that I was both found and really go deep into the, the technical and un- un- underneath mechanism, Red Panda. So the team has also released a couple of benchmarks comparing Red Panda with Kafka such as the API design, the transaction performance, and the replication protocols. So can you walk through the major benefits of choosing Red Panda over Kafka? Yeah. 
let me count the ways. I think that at a high level, there's really three pillars. The main one is operational simplicity, right? For those of us that have operated Kafka, Kafka is extremely complicated to use. If you look at it, right, if you look at the other companies like Cloudera and all of these other vendors, they literally make money because they make Kafka easier to use, like full stop. And it's just, I think that from a go-to-market perspective, we eliminated that categorically. We said it's a single file and you copy it to three computers and you're done. There's no need for anything else, right? We'll automate it. Don't worry. We'll onboard the complexity. One of the things that I tend to struggle with is the idea that that people can eliminate complexity. You cannot eliminate complexity, right? Like you can only shift complexity and either the product onboards the complexity or you're pushing the complexity to your users. That's it. Like this, you have two choices. And I think for me, it's we are the storage experts. So we tend to onboard the complexity ourselves, whether it's tuning the kernel or tuning Red Panda, all of these things. So I think to think about Red Panda, operational simplicity, running with very small teams, lessons learned, from Akamai, being super high performance, that's just my personal background. I love per high performance software, low latency in particular. And then that, that was like, I think the, the main attraction for developers. The other thing is that we speak the same protocol as Kafka. So you could take your existing application pointed at Panda without a single line of code change. That is super powerful to onboard 10 years of code that a company has written against Kafka and it just works. So that's one. Two is that it had to be fast. And that's just from the DNA of the company. The majority of my core engineers are just experts. I think they've had 15, 20 years, 17 years, 12 years is common on the core storage engine engineers to have been working on low latency storage, in particular storage systems. And it's like the team that we got together that were experts at making things fast and making things safe. And then the last one is data safety. I think that there was a... Over time, I think a decade or so ago, there was this idea that you couldn't make safe systems fast and hardware proved everyone wrong. And it's actually hardware is pretty good. It's just software took a long time to catch up. And so we chose a safe by default protocol because that's how people think. Like you can't ask a developer, hey, if you save data to your database, do you expect it to not be there? You're like, no, like the point of sending data to this database is so you save it. Oh, you database, you onboard the complexity. And so for us, it was delivering those three pillars. So operational simplicity, huge performance benefit, and making sure that we don't lose data. Yeah. Operational simplicity, fast velocity, and enabling data safety key pillars of choosing Rekpana or Kafka. Exactly. Yeah. We'll talk about the platform in a bit, but I just want to quickly talk about the open source initiative that your team has been working on. After about 22 months of building it quietly, your team decided to open source Red Panda in November 2020 under the source available less than BSL. How did this decision come about? Where I was looking for my sales team, I had five huge companies trying to pay me, I think, a million dollars for some PSCs. It didn't feel like the right company I wanted to build. I regret not having open source parts of Concord when we had momentum. I don't think it would even make sense for Akamai to open source it now because, frankly, there are other better solutions today, like generally speaking, I think Concord still improves in some dimensions, but largely I think there are other systems that take. And so I wanted to change how developers think about building real-time data. And I couldn't have done that if the system was closed sourced. Mm -hmm. Like really, I, I could have made money 
but it couldn't have changed how a category, like categorically, how developers think about real-time data. And I think the only way that I was going to be able to move an entire market was to make the code source available, which means by and large, people can run it and they don't have to pay us money and people do. We track downloads and we have a ton of Fortune 1000 companies running Red Panda and some of them don't pay us and it's totally fine. It's part of the contract and it's part of the license. The restriction is that I didn't want the Amazons and the Googles of the world to, well, mostly Amazon really, to maybe some other companies too. I think some other companies were copying Amazon model of offering this service. We do all the value creation and they do all of the value capture. And I didn't want that to happen. So yes. the only restriction is you can't offer Red Panda as a service. That we're reserved. Other than that, you could run it, you could use it, you can embed it. We just don't really care. We just want to be the company that reserves the right to. We also have to build the company and pay engineers. And our engineers are expensive because we pay well. And that's how we found to be a good balance between being able to build the real company and still be able to change how developers think about real-time data. Absolutely. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, you think then that BSL license for open source project, you think that's a, that's a model that more open source creators should, should adopt when they think about commercialization of this project? I recommend that they look at it. Every project is very contextual. And I think the problem with open source discussions is everyone has an opinion mm -hmm. and very few people are experts. And really, and, and as the CEO of the company, whoever is going to make the decision, you just need to become an expert and you need to talk to everyone, whether it's Elastic and Mongo and Materialize and, as, and like all of these other companies and learn the context. What is the context? that this project became and they did have four years of ecosystem development and they just have to monetize. Like Grafana is a great example. They're like, whatever, four or five years where they were building the tech and they're just building tech. And at one point they decided to monetize and it was awesome because they had all this penetration. I don't think if you had a different approach to company building, if you were coming this from a more technical background, that you would be able to achieve the same kind of growth in general. It's just like, a lot of this is a balance between commercialization, adoption, changing how developers think. And it's a really challenging thing. And so I don't know if I would make a blanket statement. This makes sense for everyone. I think it's very contextual. I do recommend people talking to experts. And experts, people whose job depends on making a decision. Me or Ajay at Timescale or David Tiria at, at Mongo, he's the CEO. He orchestrated that. or Gaurav at Elastic, who is now at Lightspeed. People that like the individuals that did the work of figuring out licensing for their particular projects, because they know the context. And what you, the only thing you can learn is learn their context and understand what makes sense for you, for the company, so that you can make the best decision that you can with experts' opinions. Yeah. And it sounds like you, you personally talk with a lot of those people in I think in the post you mentioned, this is like heavily inspired by what CosroTV have done with them all. Exactly. Talk with Matt, Matty at, at Cockroach or Spencer at Cockroach. The people that did, that went through the pain of having to make a decision, right? Like you have to make a decision and they will tell you, these were the things that were hard. These were the things that were easy. This, were, this was the impact. 
It changes the entire company built out. It changes the DNA, it changes who you hire, it changes the sales team, it changes the customer success. It's a pretty deep thing that people don't tend to think about enough. Now, because we're currently in the topic of open source, I want to talk quickly about that. The open source project, Red Panda had like over 4.5 thousand stars on GitHub and your Slack channel also has over 2.1 thousand participants. So what tactics have you found to be successful in order to raise the adoption and contribution to an open source library? To some extent, it was really a market timing a question, really. And when we came out with the technology, there's this huge pent-up demand of having a true alternative. Really, before Red Panda existed, there was no non-JVM alternative to doing real-time streaming. If you look at or I guess no managed runtime. The most popular system by and large was Kafka. And the second most popular was Pulsar, at least that we get to see that I see myself. And so if if you weren't a JVM expert or you had allergy to to running JVM systems, there was just like no alternative. So if you wanted to do this some projects, like you had to onboard the complexity, like there's no alternative. And so when we presented our idea of a single binary, the world was ready for that. And in, a lot of our growth has been really organic. We focused early on, on on building really technical blog posts in the companies. Let me tell you how we built the systems. So you could potentially use some of the lessons learned here to build your own systems. And so a lot of the engineers tended to gravitate towards that kind of honesty. It's just, a, this is what we know. If it happens to apply to the things that you work on, cool, learn and go build a better system or Blog post was really a, a big thing. And then in the market, we had some people that were famous in Twitter famous or something like that. They weren't famous by any measurable dimension, but people knew about them. They're like, oh, this person has worked on really impressive systems. And so I think having that combination of producing really technical blog posts where people learn and having people that were influencers in some dimension just help bootstrap the community. And then honestly, it's been organic ever since. Our larger source of users is still Google directly on Red Panda. And I think it's just been very organic. I see. A lot of product impact interest, technical content, and so influencer in the community who started awareness of it. And I do agree with the fact that a lot of the content on Red Panda's blog is highly technical. A lot of this initiative as a way to educate people about the product. And I also found out that's the Red Panda University, I believe, which is yeah. teaching self-based classes on streaming data fundamentals. And I'm sure that also like an initiative as a way to educate and evangelize streaming in Red Panda for developers. Yeah. So I think that companies tend to focus too much on trying to capture every ounce of value that they create. And I think it's. For some companies, maybe it's a valid strategy. I tend to see is work where we don't exist in isolation. There's just often a database, whether it's Mongo or Materialize, ClickHouse or whatever, the SQL or Postgres or Amazon or Aurora or Snowflake. It doesn't really matter. We, Red Panda, as a product, exist often in between a lot of other products. And the idea of a university is can we just educate people how real-time streaming works? Some will become customers, some may not become customers, and it's totally fine. The market is big enough for us to capture that. And 
to the developers, I think they appreciate that. It's uh, cool if Red Panda works, then Red Panda works. And what we've had seen, this is a thing that takes years to learn, as in it, it, literally because it, it couldn't happen sooner. Is we had a developer that learned about Red Panda, read a bunch of blog posts. He really wanted to use it and just didn't make sense. His company chose that. He changed jobs and then brought Red Panda in. And so that's the kind of relationship I want to have with people. We're going to be here for a long time. And I just want to have a long-term relationship with people. And a lot of the content is useful now. Hopefully in the future, we could do business together. But if not, totally fine. Maybe you got something useful out of it. And it's fine. Like we, We're just in such a... I think it's a different approach to building. I don't need to extract every ounce of value creation. I just need to extract enough to build like a highly sustainable, highly scalable company. I think there's a difference there. And so anyways, I tend to see those relationships more long-term than short-term. And so I think that's why we create a ton of the learning resources. Yeah. It's, it's great to have someone be, being so passionate about product that, you know, they're an the internal champion for their own company and bring it along with the career as well. So I want to talk about the product technical aspect of it. So Red Panda is an intelligent data API as described in the website that can turn data stream into data products. And more specifically, I believe that this API has three parts. Compatibility with RPG Kafka API, unification of historical and real-time data thanks to shadow indexing, and stateful store procedures for streaming data via the WebAssembly engine. Could you mind unpacking the design of this API at a high level? Yeah, what we're seeing or I guess what we saw early on in the product was that Kafka became the, the Kafka protocol. Ka Kafka is many things, right? And so let me break it down for people. Kafka is, a, is an API and it's an implementation. The Kafka protocol became the lingua franca of streaming. Everything speaks Kafka. If you have ClickHouse, it connects into it. If you have Mongo, they have a connector. If you have Cockroach, it produces CDC into Kafka. If you have just about, if you have TensorFlow, it just works straight with the streaming, right? Just basically just about every streaming project has a language mapping into Kafka. What we saw is that in practice, that was only enough to get started. What people needed is the unification of real-time and historical data through the same API. So what we did is you can write data to Red Panda. And over time, you have to make space for new data, right? If you just write data, at some point, you're going to feel the disk and the computer is going to crash, right? Because the disk is full. So we have this background process that cleans up all data. And instead of deleting data, we first upload the data to an object store like S3. And then we delete it locally. From the point of view of, of a developer, the local storage becomes a cache. And really, it expands the architecture to leverage the true cloud-native scalable storage backends like S3 to be the long-term, to be the actual true storage mechanics. And the disks on the computer is really designed for short-term storage. And so when you think about that way, what we've done effectively is you can take the same code untouched and tell Repanda, hey, evaluate this new machine learning pipeline with data from five years ago, as it's the same code to do it right now in real time. And so it's a very powerful concept to unify both dimensions. And so that was really what we worked on last year. 
what we've released is this idea of read replicas. So the idea is that as you tend to build this cluster, sometimes you want to do what Snowflake did with ephemeral clusters. Is like that because the data lives in S3, lives in a this aggregated layer, you can bring up ephemeral clusters to do machine learning, to do AI, to do database hydration without affecting any production workload. And so your client library code connects us straight into Red Panda and it could just read the tiered storage. It's not going to be as real time as your live cluster, but it's going to be a bit closer within minutes. And so this idea of being able to do read replicas from tiered storage is incredibly powerful to disaster recovery use cases. It gives the developer flexibility. You don't have to think a priori about all of the possible mapping and all of the possible databases before you even write your code. You can evolve this more iteratively. You can just start pushing your data into Red Panda. It'll upload it into S3. And at some point in the future, you can consume all the data and build the Mongo view or build the ClickHouse view or build the MySQL view or build the Postgres view. Like it just, it ultimately, it doesn't matter. And so that's what the unification of real-time and historical data is, which we're super, super excited to release. The last one is WebAssembly and JavaScript. Now, there's just jazz. I think that the WebAssembly is going to have an impact on server-side applications like Red Panda, the same impact that JavaScript had on the web in the 90s. You've seen them before you had JavaScript. Things were like clunky, they were maybe fast, but they just went that this like interactive, immersive experiences that people are used. Whether you like it or not, JavaScript's had net positive impact in the web today. Like most websites, like I would say, it's probably an outlier that you don't have JavaScript in your browser because it creates interactivity with the user. Right? Like it, it builds, the browser now becomes a platform to ship immersive applications on a website. I think that's what WebAssembly is going to have on server-side application. WebAssembly is a sandboxed runtime. It's an intermediary language representation. And then it often comes with an implementation that allows you to sandbox runtime. And so if you were to think about databases, it's really what store procedures wished they were in the 90s, right? It's just like, you program in your favorite language and you get to teach Red Panda different tricks at runtime. The way I like to think about it in an analogy is, it's like the Transformers combiners were, where like you have Optimus Prime, he stands, and then like another robot attaches itself with a laser and another it's whatever, a machine gun, and the other one is a shield. And so to me, that's the power of WebAssembly is that you're going to be able to teach this very already sophisticated storage engine new tricks and the tricks only make sense to you, to your public domain, to your application. That's really how I see WebAssembly having an impact like long-term. Mm -hmm. And then by the time this podcast air, we already are going to have the first in the industry that allows you to ship JavaScript to the server side to do server-side JavaScript filtering. So let's say that you're trying to do time travel debugging. So a lot of the challenges with Real-time streaming is understanding what happened when something goes wrong because it's an immutable log, it's an append on the end. The Red Panda console allows you to, to time travel, go back in history, introspect the data. And because sometimes the data is too large, you can push a JavaScript filter to the UI backend 
and the UI backend is going to stream to you the results. And so it makes for this incredibly interactive experience. It's Airtable. Some of this interactive SQL filter where you just you start writing the SQL on, on a terminal and then all of a sudden like your table starts changing the shape and it starts changes how it displays. Like it's beautiful and it's, it's like super immersive experience to allow developers to debug, which I think is the last mile for streaming data is actually focusing on the human experience. It's like, how do I make developers more productive? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's yeah, tied back to one of the parts you mentioned way earlier in, in our conversation, talking about that that 60, 60 second wow effect, right? Developer benefit happy from the product. And it, it sounds like this UI is like the features that like can enable such an experience about WebAssembly. There's also a blog post really detailed on Red Panda website that'll be shown in the show notes written last year about some of the details, the architecture overview and the benefit of using it as well. So you, you talk about uh, that importance of unification between historical and real time and the need for processing real time data is, has become more and more important. So I believe that a key strategy Red Panda's product development has been facilitating integration with other tools in the data infrastructure ecosystem, such as MongoDB, Materialize, DPD Labs, DeepHaven, to name a few. Where do you see Red Panda fit into the quickly evolving modern real-time data stack? I really see it. There's different levels of sophistication. I think what I'm going to share is I think the future of where I see architectures heading to is this idea of control plane databases. The idea that the log Red Panda or a Red Panda-like service doesn't have to be Red Panda, right? I'm giving the audience architectural pieces to think about their applications in Lego blocks, if you will. There's this new trend of using an immutable write-ahead log, like a log, mm -hmm. as the source of truth for your business. And everything else just becomes a cache. And so when you adopt this new idea of thinking, if you look at the ideas of microservices or whatever, what people are really building are control plane databases, if you really think about that. Like you're writing this immutable log of events, this changed events, right? Alex logged into the website, Alex clicked this UI, Alex bought this cart item, Alex dequeued this cart items, Alex made a purchase with two items, Alex used his Visa card, you know what I mean? Like there's this sequence so you can reconstruct the entire histories. And so architecturally, I think that's where the world is heading. And we've proven to be right somewhat but by some new frameworks, like Materialize is a good one where they use timely and differential data flow, these technologies that Frank McSherry built at Microsoft to build computational models on top of the log. There's a, I think MemGraphDB is a graph database that is used against the log. Let's say there's DeepHaven, which is this interactive Python thing that allows you to consume the log as the source of truth and build these materialized tables with machine learning models. And so on. there's Rising Wave, there's TimePlusDB, there's just a huge set of databases that have adopted this architecture where the log becomes a shared service in your infrastructure and everything else is just a materialized view or a cache of the data. So I think in my opinion, this is how people are already doing it. It's just going to get codified in like developers are going to consume enough content and this will become more and more the case. It's really a function of the market having 
pressure on products. Like ultimately, let me walk this, I think, through end users as to tie your audience with real things. My expectation when I transact my credit card is that if someone in like a prince in Nigeria transacts my credit card, like I expect it to be denied on the second. Something had to power that real-time thing. And there's, there's no magic, right? There's only some code running on some CPUs somewhere. And so the pressure that we put on and the expectations that as consumers we put on systems transitively, at some point, they become systems like a red pen. And I think that's the trend. And so where you think about Red Panda becomes the source of truth. Red Panda becomes ring zero. It becomes the base on which other sophisticated systems are built on top. But we're very much focused on the lowest level, the storage engine, tiered storage, optimization, being fast, blah, blah, blah. Because you need these guarantees to build higher level systems. Like you, you just need them. So I think that's the long-term view is we continue to be a base layer for a lot of new projects and infrastructure. And I think that there's a lot of innovation space to be still left in, even in the base layer. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Love that metaphor about being the ring zero, the base layer, like being the foundation of support, the component, the stack that power real time stream processing data application. Yeah. So super excited to see that vision fulfilled in the upcoming months and years or so for Red Panda. Let's take up your product head and put on your CEO head. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early stage startup founder. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Red Panda's mission? This really is, has been the best thing that we've done in this company. It's, it, I guess to me, the best thing that I've done is being able to find a group of humans that I'm excited to come to work with. And they, in turn, are excited to come and work with their peers to build something cool. Um, and hard, actually computationally difficult to build. So I think people are, tend to get attracted by hard problems, by working on hard things. Basically being base infrastructure, there's a lot of responsibility around data integrity, data high availability, consistency, semantics. There's a lot of very difficult things. And they honestly continue to expand. It's like the surface areas is endless whack-a-mole of how to even make it better. Every day we try to be a little better. So. The main takeaway is to do, I think what I mentioned on the Yilmo days is expect, demand people to be tactically excellent. So like th their job, they have to be able to do their job. Design the interview process to extract signals so that the person is tactically excellent. But as a CEO, focus on the human equation. Make sure that this person is a good person to work with. They're like fundamentally a, a good human to partner with. And what we did is we partnered with a psychologist to design a set of personality questions to extract that signal. Are they comfortable with the Latino CEO or are they racist? Are they sexist? You know what I mean? Like try to weed out bad people from infecting your culture and guard that and make sure that cultural question, every single interviewer, excuse me, every single person that joins the company has been filtered against a base set of strong signals that we consider to be core part of the company identity. Yeah, thanks for providing you that valuable insight. I love the part about design interview to extract tactically excellence. It's very principal. I guess another point related to, to hiring 
And like you talk about only five people who are going to make your culture better. Like how has your experience been this far with Red Panda in terms of culture building? Like how do you enforce a, a culture of excellence with your company over the time? Culture is really what people do when they show up to work. And what we haven't done is even if we have external business pressure, like to add new features, to build new things, to expand, we haven't let those pressures force us to hire less, le lesser, I guess, from a quality level to keep the bar really high from the people that we've hired. Because I said, I would rather not build something than get someone in the company that is going to damage the things that we've built. It's at least I see it as a very tender flower and we're 105 people or so. And so we're still like, the tree is much more resilient now than it was a year ago when we were 20 people. But it's still tender and then it requires care and it requires obsession on these things. And so that's really what I tell my managers. I was like, I expect that the people that you bring are excellent. And because the people that are here are already excellent and I think so highly of them, it's a drag when you come to work and one of the people, this, this guy's a dud and he just can't, they can't do their work. They're just a drag to come to, they're negative, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't want to work with that person. And there's create this like very passive detachment from the things that you're building. And I care so much that people feel proud about their peers. It's, at least you're like, wow, this person challenges me in a way and helps me grow. I think that's something I really care about. And so I just demand that from my hiring managers. I was like, you need to bring people that you feel proud of. And if you wouldn't feel proud of bringing this person to talk to a customer, then don't hire that person because that person is clearly not the right fit for us. So I think it's in, in part is setting those expectations. And actually, I can't push a hiring manager. I can't ding a hiring manager for lack of a better word for not being able to, to whatever, to deliver a feature faster. If I said no to a hire, they're like, this person could have done this. I think that there's different ways of ensuring performance. And I was like, how, are we interviewing enough people? Are we talking to the right candidates? Are, maybe we do better with sourcing. There are other ways of thinking about the performance. But to me, I will walk away from any hire that isn't an excellent person. And I'm comfortable doing that. And I understand the business impact that we'll have. Absolutely. I want to quickly talk about customers. I think definitely important for any startup. So finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. What are some of the challenges that your team have to overcome to find some of the early design partners across major industries like IoT, hard tech, finance, healthcare, and I think you mentioned earlier, space, satellites. For us, it's been the opposite. It's, it's not finding, it has been the easy part for us. It's like we went from zero to the largest Kafka workloads in the world. We have people pushing 14 gigabytes per second sustained, 10 gigabytes. And so you go from a relatively young storage company to the largest known Kafka workloads in the world. And you're just like, I just didn't think about that condition, to be honest. And so a lot of it for us, we have been very lucky. In, and I think I mentioned the market timing. And so with that, we've been just very picky about the companies that we get to partner with. Sometimes we tell companies, honestly, we're just not the right company for you at this stage. I know you love the technology and you love the company, but we are not, it's not you, it's me. And I don't mean it in like a, a dismissive way. I really mean it as in, I want to make you successful. And like, I personally care 
about you being successful. And so if we decide to engage, I want you to succeed. Otherwise, it just doesn't make any sense. It's like everyone just wastes time and develops a negative relationship with the product. And so one, we've been lucky in having enough demand to be able to choose the partners that we work with. And two is that we chose to do the hard things, which is if we solve the hardest Kafka workloads in the world, it'll probably work for the belly of the market. And it worked out okay. Now people call us when they cross the gigabyte per second, they're like, I should probably pay you guys. But they're like pushing 100,000 partitions or whatever they're pushing. It's just like absurd scale. And they're like, yeah, I love the product and I want to pay you. And so that's how we chose partners. And, and, and that was the process of figuring out who to partner with. Absolutely. We talk about working with employees, working with customers. And the last group of folks I want to talk about is investors. So Red Panda has raised over $76 million in total funding to date from top tier venture capital firms such as Lightspeed, Google Ventures, and Haystack. What fundraising advice could you give to founders who are seeking the right investors for their startups? I have less good advice here than in other parts, in part because we've been very lucky and we really haven't had to fundraise very hard. Like we've been preempted most of the time. It's basically people, VCs just really care about traction and yeah, we've been very lucky since our seed stage, like Haystack was the first check into, Simula was the first check into HashiCorp and some early employees into Instacart. And Arif is our partner with at Lightspeed and he funded our seed stage companies and that set the stage and has had so many public IPOs and successes. Dave Muni was on the recent IPO for GitLab and Slack. And so I think that the companies and logos we were working with attracted the right investors and then which has been very fortunate. Uh, honestly, the only thing that matters for a product is market timing and traction. If you can show traction, then I think funding becomes a little easier. So I don't have good advice for companies that are struggling with gaining traction. For me, it was actually more thinking about how do I reason about partnering with the venture partner? And my board is excellent. So I highly recommend Arif Mohammed at Lightspeed and Dave Vinicello at Google Ventures and Samuel from Haystack. They're all good people. And that's how I selected my investors. Knew I was going to be in this for 10 plus years. And can I find a good human to partner with? Is this person going to challenge me in the right ways? But and are they going to do it in a respectful way? And do I think of them highly as an individual outside of the firm that they're associated with? And so I've over-index, I think that was a big lesson learned in general in this company. It's like over-index on the human part of the equation and expect tactical excellence for people. Design a process to extract signal. And so in my opinion, I think my board members are excellent. Highly recommend and think very highly of them. They've been super positive for me. And they're also good humans. I have dinner with them and things like that. And that doesn't happen to, to every founder. Take it with a grain of salt. I'm lucky and I realize that in this regard. And so it may not be useful. Gotcha. Yeah, it sounds like that framework about open day signal on people and try to get 30% work very well across from employees to customers to investors. And that's possibly yeah. the secret sauce to superpower. So I want to round up our main conversation on a personal note. You started the Hack the Planet Scholarship program in 2018 that helps minorities in tech who want to work on distributed systems. What advice could you give? to a smart, driven minority who aspire to work on ambitious, technically diff and challenging problems? 
I think that it depends on where they are in the world. So some the advice will vary. And, and this is just me having interviewed hundreds of people around, actually thousands by now in, in this company alone. It's very sad actually to see entire countries get delegated into BS problems in engineering. It's like, oh, you only do support or you only do kiddos, but why? If this person is smart, why couldn't this person be part of the core engineer? It just, why not? And sometimes there are like real reasons as in the schooling at the university level isn't good enough to produce this kind of talent. It doesn't mean you don't give them opportunities. It just means it's where the person starts. And so sometimes they're like real, from a company perspective, I was like, you don't have the mental tooling to operate at the level that we need you to do. So these are the positions that we have open and you just have to be honest with yourself. Now, from being a minority myself, I feel that you often don't get a chance to work on really hard problems. So focusing on minorities in the US, which is a very different thing than like minorities in different countries. I think that for me is that I invented this scholarship even before we fundraised a bunch of money because I wanted to make the world a better place and I didn't want it to be scalable. I don't need to set up a scholarship with a hundred. I just want to make the world better by, by one person. And frankly, I don't really care if I get recognition. This is like not part of the program. It's not designed to be scalable. It's not designed to, to teach a legion of people. It's just designed to make the life of one person in the world better. Full stop. We take all of their intellectual property and give it back to them. We don't, as a company, we literally, I have my lawyers draft a contract that says this person's all intellectual property is theirs permanently. We don't, we don't get to use it. And I give them money and I give them mentoring and I expect nothing in return. They don't build any projects related to Red Panda. I don't care what they build. All I want to do is I'll give you mentorship for one hour. It's not designed to be a replacement for the recurse center or other things, is it? I think it's a complement to a lot of the programs that exist in the world that I thought we could have a huge impact in someone's life. And I think that the impact is in opening up the eyes of people. It's like, you too could do it. I was like, no, why not you? If you're listening to this podcast, like, why can't you be the MVP? Like, why can't you build a distributed storage engine? Why can't you be the person that, that makes the world a little bit better? And so we had the money and we did it, right? Like when it comes down to that, we had the money, the talent, and I wanted to do it. And I'm the CEO. So it's like, we're going to do this. And that was it. And, and I say all of the engineers really love that idea. They want to be part of it and they want to help. And I think they align culturally. This yeah. is the kind of company that I want to build. And so long story, I wanted to make the world a little better place. And I wanted to help, I think, underserved communities from just approaching hard problems. Go and chase something very difficult and you'll probably fail. And it's fine. We'll create a safer space for you to fail. And we'll even give you a little bit of money and mentorships. Just fail on the weekends. I don't really care. If you're sitting on your couch and you do nothing, that's on me for choosing a bad candidate. Yeah. Most people that we chose are super dedicated. They'll work, they'll do this like nights and weekends, or sometimes they'll like work, they're already working half a week kind of thing with the current jobs. And so there's, maybe this is just the help that they need to break into the next tier of thinking to unblock themselves and be like, I could do this. I, I could build hard systems. And I think to me, that's a really huge thing. And then the second thing is the network that we open up for them. All of our principal engineers are worked at all the places, the Netflix, Google, Dropbox, Akamai, Microsoft, it just, it doesn't matter. And so over time, building that connection with some of my principal engineers gives them 
like such a leg up to just land in, in the world's best companies and the world's best startups. And the program is twofold. One is to help minorities dream bigger and work on hard problems. And two is to open up the network of some of the best engineers in the world. And so as this other person develops their career, they maybe get a chance at working in for the best companies in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Praising the level of ambition and opening up the access to the expertise, I would say. Those are the key criterias and go through the project. Alex, at this point of our conversation, I want to move to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the distributed system community whose work you admire. Yeah, that's hard. So say, I think Andy Pavlo and Leslie Lamp are two that come to mind. I think Kyle doing Jepson report, I think that's good. That's a good balance. I think that the issue I have with that question is that I admire too many people and I think it does a disservice to the other people that I think very highly of. Some of them I work with, right? So I think extremely highly of Noam, Dennis, and Mihan, all of my principal engineers. I hired them and Travis down to the world expert in performance. And so it feels a little unfair because I was like, oh, immediately the people that I thought highly of, I was like, they work with me in my team today. <laughs> they were world famous at what they did and I want to work with them and I hired them. And so it just feels really lucky to be able to work with them. But anyways, I think that's a good enough mix. And just, I think I value a lot of the practical systems experience and people building things that work today, not tomorrow, not for the next 10 years. It's like, who's building systems that matter today? Anyways, I, I think those are good people. But honestly, I could go on. I think Heidi is a good person working on a lot of consensus stuff. I could really go on for hours about people I admire, or at least I think very highly of in, in some dimensions. I haven't met a lot of these people personally. So it's not the problem with me with heroisms and figures is that people tend to think of them holistically. And I think as we only get to know a specific part of their personality, I think I admire those people. And it would be hard for me to say, I wholeheartedly recommend this person. I think people whose the work I respect are theirs. And there's just too many to mention. For sure. Number two, what is one book you would recommend for engineers to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset? I think most books are really poor at this, to be honest. I think that I would actually advise at around, and like you've read all, in my opinion, at least cheesy recommendations. I think the zero to one book that you've read, and it's just like, this could be a blog post. I think that to me, that my problem with some of these leadership books is like, this 300 pages could be a two-page blog post. <laughs> and it's not to like, to degrade the work of the people that build the books. Like they're great and they work for a large majority of people. Just when I read them, I was like, this could just be a, a, like a 10 item blog post. And so anyways, I think what to me, what has tends to have a, a larger impact is talking to people that are doing it. Like literally talk to someone that decided to build a business or decided to build something. And you'll meet people that have no money. like literally from zero, like they, they have debt, they have hundreds of thousands of dollars in college debt, and they believe so much in their ideas that they're doing it. And maybe you think that's crazy and it's totally fine, but like actually talking to the people who are doing it is to me is much more inspiring than reading a book because a book glosses over the personal struggle of the details that sometimes you don't want to read it in a book, right? Like sometimes you don't want to write these things for the world to know, but if you're on a one-on-one -on -one conversation, you might want to share. It's like, it sucks not having money to buy lunch and dinner. And sometimes you had to 
buy a burrito and split it in half because you didn't have money. Like this kind of personal struggles, I think contextualizes the conversation and the real struggle for a lot of entrepreneurs is this, a lot of people come from money, right? And so it's probably depends on the context in which you're coming from and context is king. And so anyways, I think I would err on the side of talking to people that are doing it, like the doers, the people that actually show up to work every day and are now trying to invent something or do something new. I, I think that that will have a higher impact, in my opinion, than, than reading books. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm sure like listeners through this conversation can already appreciate your honest answer and, and authenticity with somebody on personal stroke early as well as your career as well as a father. Finally, imagine that you could send out a single tweet to all the early stage distributed system engineers on Twitter. What would you tweet about? I think, why not you? I really, I think if you're listening to this, why not you? Why can't you build the system that you've been wanting to build for a long time? And uh, I think just ask yourself that question. A lot of distributed systems, by the time you get to a distributed systems, you tend to be a relatively mature engineer in your thinking and how you've built enough systems. But I actually think it generalizes to just any builder. Like, why not you? If you've been trying to build some machine, right? If you're like a carpenter, if you're trying to invent something, like (laughs) start, get something. Something is better than nothing. And I think people have a tendency of, they have this analysis paralysis of, oh, this has to be perfect. And, And actually something is better than nothing and build something. And then the world is going to teach you that it sucks. A lot of the times, just the early prototypes are really bad. It just, it doesn't matter what you built. Like, it's just, it's like, you don't have enough context or expertise. Like it, it's physically, I think, literally impossible to build the perfect system from the get-go. You could build good things about it. And so you attach onto these good things and you improve on the things that could be better. And now, but there's anything for some of the builders listening in is why not you? I, I think that it's just a, it's a personal question for them to answer. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great way to conclude our conversation. That also tied back to some of your audience about academic rigor, feedback loop, and then sort of distinction between personal identity and professional accomplishment as well. I think it's a really nice way to kind of circle back throughout your career. Alex, I really enjoy this chat, learning about your, your background growing up in Columbia, your time at NYU, working on cryptography, your early career at Success Research System, Yumo. Parting Concord, working at Akamai, and your current journey with Red Panda, meeting the streaming data person engine that power mission critical workload, tactical conversation related to engineering challenges, product development, open source adoption, hiring, finding customers, investing, and opening up opportunities for minorities. I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today in the show notes, so listeners have a chance to take a look for that. Follow your journey with Red Panda and Richard if they're interested in learning more. So yeah, uh, it's a great chat with you, Alex, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks, James. Great chatting. Bye. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye.
Bye for now.